are fake vegan meats okay? Let me say that they're always better than what they're replacing. However, they packed a lot of fat in them and they packed in specifically saturated fat to give it that sort of mouth feel that you would get for if you were eating a meaty burger. And so what that really means is that it's not as helpful a choice as the other ones. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And this is your show today. You are steering the ship, because today... We are opening up the doctor's mailbag, reaching in and pulling out all of your questions as we seek to clear up a lot of misinformation that is out there about vegan diets, about plant-based diets. What's true? What's not? Well, helping us to cut through all of that clutter are two of the best in the nutrition game. Dr. Neil Barnard will be here and Dr. Jim Loomis will be here to answer your questions right here on the exam room. And there are a lot of good ones. One of the biggest ones that we've gotten recently, a lot of people are curious about these plant-based meats. So somebody wrote in, wanted to know how Dr. Barnard felt about mock meats, like the Impossible Burger. He goes in depth about which ones maybe a little bit healthier than others and what his general opinion is of them overall. So we're going to get into that with them. Plus, we're also going to hear about pesticides on apple peels and whether or not it's better to just not eat an apple at all if it's not organic. Does the risk of eating pesticides outweigh the benefits, the health benefits that come from eating the apple? Well, we'll find out. Dr. Loomis will be weighing in on that. Plus, we're going to learn about the best form of B12. And is there such a thing as using too much nutritional yeast? We're going to find out from Dr. Barnard about that. And Dr. Loomis also going to be weighing in about three-day juice fasts. Fasting is all the rage right now. So three-day juice fasts. What does Dr. Loomis think about the health benefits of that? Well, we will find out. Plus, we're going to talk calcium and protein and all kinds of other things. SOS diets and fat-soluble vitamins. We're going to get super nerdy as we answer your questions right here on the Exam Room Podcast. So let's clear up that confusion and bust some myths right now with Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis. Dr. Barnard, first question comes to you. This is one that actually is a carryover from a previous show. You and I were talking about it a little bit before this show today. And this is a question from Laura Ann on Twitter. She wants to know, are fake vegan meats okay? I love Beyond Meat sausage and burgers, but I can't eat anything with yeast. I also like Trader Joe's protein patties. So what do we know about those mock meats, Dr. Barnard? Yeah, that's a great question. You and I were talking about this just before the show. And and let me share some some figures with you. But first, um, let me say that they're always better than what they're replacing. So if you're a meat eater and you go to a vegan meat substitute, a vegan burger or whatever, they're always better than the meat version of it. I don't mean just ethically better and environmentally better. Those are pretty obvious. But from a health standpoint, 
they don't have any cholesterol in them, they don't have animal fat in them, they're not going to have animal hormones, and so forth. But they vary. So let's start uh, Boca Burger. Uh, they make a vegan burger, 70 calories in a patty, one gram of fat, uh, no saturated fat. That's good. Uh, Engine 2, great brand, uh, pioneered by Rip Esselstyn. Uh, 140 calories in a, in a patty, two grams of fat, no saturated fat. Okay, super. We're, we're, these are both great. Uh, Gardein, uh, Amy's, in, uh, make a, Amy's makes a California burger. Uh, similar, not very much fat, really no saturated fat to speak of. However, um, the Beyond Meat uh, Company and Impossible Burger set out to really try to seduce meat eaters. And to do that, they packed a lot of fat in them and they packed in specifically saturated fat to give it that sort of mouth feel that you would get for if you were eating a meaty burger. And so what that really means is that it's, it's uh, not as healthful a choice as the other ones here. So how am I going to know? Uh, the, the way you know is to look at the label. You're going to the store and you're picking one up. Look at the little nutrition facts label. And what you look at is the fat content and the saturated fat content. Let me show you an example. Uh, this is an Impossible Burger. Uh, total fat content, 14 grams. Once you're over, frankly, once you're over about three grams, uh, you're gonna have, you're gonna discover your weight loss is slowed down. Your efforts to reverse diabetes are gonna be slowed down. And the saturated fat in particular, that's the one that's linked to heart disease and Alzheimer's disease. So again, always better than the meat burger and the cheeseburger but you want to go to the ones that really minimize the fat and especially the saturated fat. Outstanding breakdown. Thank you, Dr. Barnard. Uh, Dr. Loomis, coming to you for this one. This one comes to us from uh, Kaiori on YouTube. She's wondering about apples. She says, organic apples are not available where I live. Does the benefit of eating the peel, though, outweigh the risk of eating the pesticides that are found on it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, so... Um, you know, there. I, I I think that overexposure to pesticides and herbicides in the diet do pose potentially a health risk. Um, just as an aside, the Environmental Working Group uh, (EWG) goes out every year and buys a bunch of vegetables and fruits and tests them for pesticides and herbicides, and they 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 actually publish. It's called the Clean Fifteen and the Dirty Dozen every year. The Clean Fifteen or the Fifteen. Uh, fruits and vegetables, which which have the lowest levels of pesticides and herbicides, and then the dirty dozen are the ones that have the most. You know, personally, what I do is if it's on the clean 15 list, I don't worry too much about buying organic. The dirty dozen, I try to always buy organic. And then the ones in between, if I eat them frequently, I tend toward organic. Specifically about apples, uh, apples uh, tend do tend to have a fair amount of, of pesticides um, uh, sprayed on. Um, but you can, you can, um, you can actually um, um, remove most of those pesticides with a fairly simple technique. A, a recent study looked at uh, pesticide levels after washing um, washing apples in in uh, water, washing them in bleach, or washing them in baking soda. And it turns out that if you wash the apples in baking soda, uh, you re re remove much more of the pesticides than water or bleach. And in fact, if you soak the apples for about 10 minutes in a, in a solution of baking soda, and I, I think it's just a couple teaspoons, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a teaspoon or two in a couple cups of water. If you soak it for about 10 minutes, you will remove almost all of the pesticides uh, on apples. So if you're concerned about 
the pesticides on your apples. I think the bet your best bet is if you can't if you can't access organic, is to just make a a, a little um, a, a sodium. Um, uh, a baking soda um, uh, solution. Soak your apples in there for, for 10, 12 minutes, scrub them off, and, and you should be good to go. All right, Dr. Barnard, coming to you for this next one. It's Friday, but Tofu Tuesday has a question about B12. Uh, they want to know, if my B12 is 1,000 milligrams a day, am I good to take it every other day or every third day? Yeah, I don't know that anyone knows the right number uh, exactly, but the amount that you actually need per day is 2.4 micrograms. That's really, really, really low. And so you go to the store and you think, let me find one that's that small. You won't find it. Um, the amount in a multiple vitamin, pretty low, uh, but 1,000 micrograms, that's way more than you need in a day. So taking it every two days, maybe every three days is okay. Um, I would not skip it though. I would, And I would take it at least you know, every other day, every third day, not, not less often than that. And follow up question from Karen. She wants to know which is the best form of B12 to take? Oh, what you're probably referring to is that you, you go to the store and you look at the label and some of them are called cyanocobalamin. Others are called methylcobalamin. And my understanding is that the methylcobalamin, that's the one that's the, the physiologic form that your body would, would normally use. The cyanocobalamin is uh, a manufactured product. I believe that the cyanide, cyanide uh, moiety is introduced really for shelf life. Um, the amount of it is so trivial that it doesn't have any toxic effects that have been identified. And so, frankly, you're okay with either one. All right, Dr. Loomis, coming over to you, going to do a little athletic myth busting here. This is a question from James. He writes, I'm lifting weights and I need help replacing chicken as my main protein source. I'm eating 150 grams a day. Can I still get that with a plant-based diet? Any help you could provide would be most appreciated. Yeah, that's a great question and, and one that comes up quite often. I, You know, people... There's a lot of kind of bro science and mythology around protein, protein sources, how much protein you actually need. Um, you know, a strength, a strength trained athlete um, needs only needs about 1.5, maybe closer to two grams per kilogram um, of protein a day. So, you know, 150 grams of protein is a is is a fair amount of, of, of protein. Now, if you, you know. It, it, I mean, you can do the math. So, so if you weigh, if you weighed about 75 um, um, kilos, which is about 150, 160 pounds, um, then you should, uh, uh, then that's a, that's about in the right range um, somewhere in there. Um, but plants have protein. And in fact, the, the protein that you're getting from that chicken, where did it come from? It came from the plants that the, the, the chicken was fed. And it's very easy to get, to get, plenty of protein. Um, and what's interesting is if you look at the natural macronutrient ratios of a plant-based diet, it's about 15% plant-based protein. It's about 75% complex carbs, 15% protein, you know, 10 or so percent, uh, um, unsaturated fat primarily. And, um, so, so what's interesting is, is that if you, um, if you're say eating, you know, 1800 calories a day, for, and that might be reasonable for someone who's not very active, um, that it turns out that for, for someone that size, that gives you about 0 0.8, 0 0.9 grams per kilogram, which is actually the RDA for someone who leads kind of a normal lifestyle. Most, if you're training, if you're in training, you're probably not eating, you know, 1800 calories a day. You might be eating two or three, 4,000 calories a day, depending on how intensely you're exercising. And so guess what happens to your, to your protein intake? Well, it doubles. So if you're, if you're, 
so that puts you right in the range you need to be. So for most people, it's really not, you don't even need to really worry about protein from a plant-based diet. You need to worry about calories. Uh, and if you're getting enough calories, then you should be, uh, it should be very easy to get enough protein, you know, beans, lentils, probably your best source, but there's, you know, broccoli has protein, whole grains have protein. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really pretty, pretty easy. All right. Lots of great questions coming in today. So let's, uh, Dr. Barnard, coming over to you now. This is a good one from Kathy. She wants to clear up a little bit of confusion surrounding calcium. She writes, I recently heard that vegans may not get enough calcium, but I've stopped taking a calcium supplement. I'm 66. Am I getting enough calcium on a vegan diet? Okay, great question. Um, and the reason people raise that for vegans is you're not having dairy products anymore. And so people imagine that the cow is somehow a factory making calcium that gets into the milk. But cows don't make calcium. Calcium is an element in the earth. The cow didn't make it. The cow ate it as the calcium passed through the roots of the grass into the blades of the grass, and then the cow eats it. Um, so if you eat green leafy vegetables, hopefully not grass, but broccoli or kale or collards or Brussels sprouts, you will get calcium in its natural source. Um, there are a couple of exceptions. Uh, spinach, chard. They have a lot of calcium, but the absorption is low. Uh, but the absorption from Brussels sprouts and broccoli and kale and collards is really high. So if you include those in your diet, you'll get a lot. There's also calcium in uh, 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 the legume group, the bean group. So you'll, you'll get plenty of calcium if you include these in your diet. Let's clear up a little confusion about cholesterol, shall we? This question comes to us from Marta. She wants to know, what can I do for high triglycerides and low total cholesterol and low HDL? I'm whole food, I'm plant-based, but I rarely eat junk food. So what else can Marta do? Okay, so, so um, your triglycerides are high. Um, Correct. Triglycerides are blood fats. They're little particles of fat going through the bloodstream. And years ago, we did a research study where we brought in uh, a group of women. They were all overweight and they wanted to lose weight. So we used a low-fat vegan diet. And the weight loss was impressive. I mean, people lost weight really well. Uh, and in fact, it was a two-year study. They kept the weight off long-term. It was great. However, what we discovered was that for most, their cholesterol levels got better, their triglycerides dropped, everything was great. But there were some where their triglycerides did, did elevate a bit. Um, so we did another study. And now we did not just vegan and low fat, where you get the benefits of the weight loss and, and so forth, but we also uh, went with uh, more uh, unprocessed foods. So uh, instead of, say, white bread, we might pick rye bread or pumpernickel bread or something like that. What we're doing is we're choosing low glycemic index foods. And suddenly we found that triglycerides drop like a stone. So if your triglycerides are high, Vegan and low fat is great. That's the first step. But you also want to get away from the high glycemic index foods. And what are those? Uh, sugar itself. Sugar is high glycemic index. It, it, it can make your triglycerides go up. Uh, white breads and, frankly, wheat breads in general will uh, often spike triglycerides. Or Well, they're high glycemic index foods. That, in turn, can affect triglycerides. Rye bread, better choice. Pumpernickel, even better. Uh, cold cereals. They'll raise your blood sugar, especially if there is a toy inside. Um, so if you switch to oatmeal or bran cereal, that's a lower glycemic index, better for your triglycerides as well as your blood sugar. Um, fruit, surprisingly enough, is a low glycemic index choice, and fruit is good. So there you have it. 
All right, Dr. Loomis, coming over to you. We got a question about a myth on juice fasting. This one comes to us, uh, wants to know, I have a friend who said that juice fasting is not healthy, has concerns that I'm interested in trying it. This person wants to know, what do you think about three-day juice fasts? Well, um, so, you know, there's a, that's a great question, actually. And so, you know, one of the problems with juice fasting is um, when we eat, as Dr. Barnard just mentioned, when we eat a piece of fruit, um, it has a relatively low glycemic index. And the reason is, is that the sugar in the fruit is actually in the fruit. And when we eat the fruit, our bodies have to do physical work. We literally burn calories to help digest the fruit. And the soluble fiber in the fruit absorbs water. It slows our progression through our digestive tract. So we slowly absorb um, the sugar, uh, our insulin levels don't rise, which is the definition really of a, of a low glycemic index. Food glycemic index is the propensity of a given food to, to spike your insulin levels and your sugar levels. Um, the soluble fiber in the in the in the in the uh, food on the fruit, uh, which I just mentioned, or vegetables, uh, acts as a prebiotic for healthy gut bacteria down the road. So so all is good. The problem is when you juice, is that you break the fruit apart. And if you're and if you're juicing, you actually throw away probably, you know, some of the most healthful parts of the fruit and vegetables themselves. And, and that is the fiber. Um, and um, now and it also, especially with fruits, not so much vegetables, but with fruits, it also can significantly raise the glycemic index because you've now kind of pre digested the food and made those sugars more readily available. Um, now. That being and so, if you're a diabetic, especially, you have to be careful. Now, that being said, if you're if you're doing a juice fast with carrots and celery and kale and things like that, which which really don't have much sugar at all, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and but but you know, in my opinion, you might as well just eat the fruit and vegetables on their own um, and and get all the benefits from those, from the, those, that all the kind of symphony of nutrients that come in eating fruits and vegetables, as opposed to kind of get selectively getting some of them and throwing away probably the best part, which is the, is the, is the fiber. So it's probably not adversely going to affect your health, but I'm not sure it provides a great health benefit. I like the way you put that symphony of nutrients that that just has a ring to it. I like that a lot. Uh, Dr. Barnard, here's a question for you. Uh, this is something that you tackled extensively in your latest book, Your Body in Balance. This is a question that comes to us from Denise. She writes, my thyroid medication dosage, uh, dosage has been reduced twice over the last year since adopting a plant-based diet. I'm wondering if it's possible to totally heal the thyroid and not have to take medication any longer. Uh, what a wonderful question. Um, you're right. When I set off to write Your Body in Balance, um, and uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's a, a book all about hormones, including thyroid hormone and, and estrogens and, and others. But in writing the part about the thyroid, I was really struck by how many people are, are low in thyroid. They're, they're hypothyroid. Um, that could be Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or in some cases, it's just an iodine deficiency. And some or the other, they have hyperthyroidism. However, we have seen exactly what you are asking about. Individuals where they changed their diet, they did what you did. They threw out the cheese pizza and the dairy and the meat and so forth. And their doctor says, I don't think you need so much medicine. And the answer to your question is yes. Um, there are people who no longer have thyroid disease at all. But here's what we don't have. We don't have a randomized clinical trial where we bring in people who are low in thyroid 
and they're all taking a thyroid supplement like Synthroid. And half of them do a vegan diet and half of them don't, and we see how they do. We, we don't have that. Nobody's ever done it yet. And frankly, I think it would be a great study to do. What we do have is lots of individuals who have done this on their own, and what you described is what has happened to them. So what do you do? Um, you have already done the right thing by changing your diet. And for those who are, are, who are wondering about this, um, observational studies have shown that people who are on vegan diets have the least risk of either hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. So there's every reason to do it. Uh, but you go to your doctor. You say, I've adopted a completely plant-based diet. Monitor me as I'm changing. And let's see if I can reduce or get off my uh, thyroid hormones. And your doctor can monitor you. So it's very safe to do uh, under, under really simple medical supervision. See how you do. All right. Sticking with you, Dr. Barnard, this is a, a good one because we have this group who will say that bacon's not bad and butter's not bad and hamburgers, they're not going to hurt you. But then we have all of this other science that says quite the contrary. So Eugene is wondering, what diet would you recommend for people with heart blockage? Oh, my goodness. Thanks. Um, w w such an important question because the number one cause of death in this country is not yet COVID. It, it, it's, uh, it's heart disease. And so many people have narrowed arteries. And what really put plant-based diets on the map, I think, um, in, the, in the beginning was about a generation ago, Dr. Dean Ornish took people who had, who had very narrowed arteries. And he didn't use statin drugs because they, didn't, they weren't part of clinical practice at that time. And he didn't do angioplasty on everybody. What he did in a carefully controlled trial that was published in The Lancet first and then the long-term results were published in JAMA. He did four things, plant-based diet, vegetarian diet. It was virtually vegan, no meat at all, no eggs, uh, very minimal amounts of dairy, but you could just leave that out. No smoking, because smoking is bad for your arteries. Everybody got physically active. They weren't really uh, running marathons, but they were doing about a good half hour walk every day. Um, and they were also dealing with stress, which is why nobody was in Washington, D.C. in his study. Just kidding. Um, after a year, uh, not only did people lose weight uh, and their cholesterol and so forth got better, but when they had an angiogram, which measures the trickle of blood that gets through the coronary arteries, they were opening up again in so much that you'd see a measurable difference in 82% of patients. So that was accomplished without medications and without any kind of surgical procedure. So that is where you start. Now, keep in mind, this is a serious condition. Don't fire your doctor. Get good medical advice. But there is every reason to do a completely vegan diet, along with the other steps that we mentioned. Dr. Loomis, coming to you for this one. Someone is wondering whether or not it's true that eating an SOS diet will affect the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins, talking about A, D, E, and K. So first of all, for those, that uh, SOS diet is, is salt, oil, and um, sugar-free. Um, so it really is, is a, is a very clean plant-based diet that eliminates, you know, the edible oils in addition to the, um, um, in addition to processed sugars and, and salt. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I think in, in response to an earlier question, uh, plant-based diets do have fat, um, and they've got more than enough fat in our diets to, to, cons to, to, um, uh, there's more than enough fat in your diet, even if you're not eating processed edible oils to absorb the, the fat soluble vitamins. I mean, broccoli has fat in it. Um, it's not very much. Uh, and again, in general, if you eat a well-balanced 
uh, whole food plant-based diet, throw in a few nuts every now and then, throw in maybe a little bit of avocado, uh, which are whole food plant-based sources of fat. Um, you do have to be careful with those kind of foods because they, 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 they are very dense in calories. But, but I think as part of a healthy whole food plant-based diet, I think there's nothing wrong with, with you know, a, a limited amount of nuts and, and, and nut butters and avocado. Yeah, I, I think they, they can play a role in a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Um, so in general, unless, unless you're really restricting your calories, um, um, there's more than enough fat in a whole food plant-based diet. Again, it runs about 10, 15% for most people uh, to absorb those kind of vitamins. All right, Dr. Barnard, this one is for you. We've got time for just a couple of more. This is a good one. Everybody uh, around the office loves nutritional yeast, the nooch. So Diane is wondering whether or not it is true that there is a risk to eating too much nutritional yeast. Yeah, you're you're probably going to have yellow stuff all over your shirt and whatever. No, no, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no problems with having too much nutritional yeast. For people who don't know what we're talking about, nutritional yeast is a bright yellow. Um, they sell it sometimes in the supplement aisle because it's very high in protein. Uh, it's often B12 fortified, but the, the, the reason people are buying it is not none of that stuff. It's because it, it tastes and smells like cheese. And so people put it on a uh, pizza. They put it on their spaghetti sauce. They put it in chili. They put it on popcorn. They put it all kinds of places. And cheese has loads of fat, loads of saturated fat, hormones, uh, but nutritional yeast doesn't have any of that. Um, it's got some protein, got a little bit of B12, but it doesn't have any of the fat. So people love it. Um, and no, there's no risk of having too much of it. Uh, one caution, this is not baker's yeast. This is not brewer's yeast. It's specifically nutritional yeast. Um, hey, Chuck, do you mind? Can I jump back in on, on the question, on the SOS question? By all means. Because um, while you can certainly see the idea of limiting salt and oil and sugar and so forth, obviously, um, there's something that I'm a little, um, I want people to be attentive to. Um, and, and I have to say, I'm in this category. Um, I avoid salt. I don't add uh, salt in cooking a, at all. But uh, salt happens to be one of the few vehicles for iodine. Who would think about it? Um, you uh, wake up in the morning, you step on the scale, and you gained a pound since last week. And your energy is not so hot. And you look in the mirror and your skin doesn't look right. There's something wrong with your hair and everything like that. You go to the doctor and the doctor says... These are nonspecific symptoms, but let me do a blood test. What your doctor is thinking is that you're not getting iodine because you're avoiding iodized salt. You're not getting iodine. If you don't get iodine, your thyroid can't make thyroid hormone anymore. And so you start getting weight. You feel dumpy and constipated and all these things. Um, sea salt doesn't have iodine in it. Neither does Himalayan salt. Neither does uh, many of the kind of boutique salts out there. I'm not saying that you need salt for it. You can have iodine in sea vegetables. Actually, that's the best source of all. Nori and wakame and arame, they're loaded with, with uh, good iodine. But if you're not eating those and you're not eating iodized salt at all, you may be at risk for um, running low in iodine. So um, also iodine supplements that you can take. So it should not be an issue. But for all my SOS friends out there, do think about making sure you have a source of iodine. You need it for healthy thyroid. That's, uh, that's, that's a, another tip from your body and balance. So I just want people to... Put on their radar. Absolutely. Go pick up a copy of that book. It's on Amazon right now. It's a phenomenal read. Cannot recommend that enough. Um, Dr. Loomis, final question is for you. And if there is ever anybody out there that is made to answer this one, 
it is you, my friend, because the debate rages on between plant-based athletes and meat-eating athletes. And so Plant Fit Meg is wondering, are there studies comparing athletic performance and recovery in plant-based athletes versus omnivores? So there's not a lot of research, but there is some. And um, in general, what they've shown is that, that endurance athletes who follow a plant-based diet may actually have a slight advantage. Um, um, they seem to be, you know, if you take, uh, you take the groups of people and match them to their VO2 max, to their kind of cardio, their best or fitness level, the, um, uh, if you're an endurance athlete, that, in fact, plant-based diets may provide a slight performance benefit. And the theory is it's a combination of uh, the, the high carbohydrate diet, which we need to replenish the glycogen stores we burn when we exercise, um, as well as it's highly anti-inflammatory. So it helps you recover from long runs and get rid of some of the muscle stiffness and soreness so you can you can perform at a higher level, you know, each time you, you go out and train. Um, in the for strength training athletes, um, the research suggests that although there may not be a a performance advantage that there's no uh, decrease in performance. In other words, uh, plant-based strength trained athletes compared to, to omnivorous uh, endure, uh, strength trained athletes show no difference in strength gain, um, performance, and such as that. So you're not going to hurt your performance if you're if you're a um, uh, a strength trained athlete. You may, but you are going to improve your health. And it's going to, you know, help the environment. There's a lot of other reasons, benefits we get from when we switch toward a plant strong, plant based diet. And if you're an endurance based athlete, there may in fact be a slight performance advantage. That Q&A was from the exam room live. Now, you've heard me talk about the exam room live time after time, just like Cindy Lauper. It's because I would love for you to join us Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. It is a great time. Always so much fun to interact and learn and raise our nutrition IQs together. And really, it is your best opportunity to ask our experts like Dr. Barnard, like Dr. Loomis, the questions that are on your mind. So that is Monday through Friday, noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. And you can find a link to both in the episode notes. Now here on the exam room podcast coming up on the next show, that will be our award show. So break out the best that you have in your closet. Let's get dressed up for this because it is our cancer fighting awards show. We will be handing out the award for the best breast cancer fighting fruit, the best breast cancer fighting vegetable, same with nuts, seeds, legumes, spices, for goodness sakes, all of those foods, which are the best to kick breast cancer. Let's fight breast cancer with food. And we're going to reveal the best foods for you indeed to fight breast cancer and handing out those awards with us is the one and only Dr. Christy Funk. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your favorite shows. Hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating if you would be so kind. And also on that episode, after we've handed out all of those awards, dietitian extraordinaire Lee Crosby, she will also be with us to answer more breast cancer questions, getting into the nuts, the bolts of fighting breast cancer through improved health, through 
better nutrition, she will be here to shatter some breast cancer myths on the exam room. But before then, I encourage you to head over to letsbeatbreastcancer.org because throughout the month of October, we are banding together to beat breast cancer. And I encourage you, please head over to that web address, letsbeatbreastcancer.org and join us. Pledge to take the four steps that we have designed to lower your risk of getting breast cancer. Pledge to follow those steps. Pledge to get healthy with us. And just by doing that, not only will you be getting healthy, you will also be entered to win a great grand prize pack with all kinds of goodies that can help to get you going on your new healthier journey. And I also want to say a big thank you to DC Vegan for supporting the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign this year as well. So go over there, learn those four steps, pledge to follow them, get registered for the prize pack. And if that's not enough, you will also receive a free e-cookbook that is chock full of cancer-fighting recipes. All of that is over at letsbeatbreastcancer.org. And before we get out of here today, I wanted to tell you this story. This came across the exam room news desk this week, and I thought that this was wildly interesting. It comes from across the pond, as a matter of fact. A new poll is revealing why Brits are going vegan. And often, it's not for themselves. This survey, conducted by the Fry Family Food Company, finds that 4 in 10 people who adopted a plant-based diet well, they did so because of their significant other. And of that group, about one in five stuck with it long term. And the British newspaper The Sun also reports that nearly half of all Brits have tried a vegetarian or strict vegan diet at some point. So why did you go vegan? Was it for yourself or was it because someone you love encouraged you to do it or you wanted to support them in their own plant-based journey for me i did it for myself but my wife i introduced her to it she did it for me fell in love she's doing it for herself now but it's interesting the motivation that gets people going so why did you do that That is all the time that we have for this show. It is a quick hitter, but remember, we will be back later on this week with a brand new episode, our award show, our cancer-fighting award show with the esteemed Dr. Christy Funk. Remember, the best fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, spices, all of that, all of the best ones to fight breast cancer, and we'll be handing out the Lifetime Achievement Award to Fiber. So again, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast, hit that subscribe button, and leave that five-star rating on Apple Podcast. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.